And we'll get started. Okay, uh, like we said last week, we're starting this uh, uh, study this summer, uh, rolling into this study, uh, about this simple idea uh, that was pitched to us uh, at the opening verses of the book of Genesis, uh, that the Bible is a story, which would not be all that interesting to anybody except for the fact that if it is a story, uh, it can explain a whole lot of things. Number one, it can explain the reason why stories move us the way in which they do. Why any sort of um, uh, 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 spinning of, of a tale that someone tells will almost immediately get your attention. I, I didn't talk about this last week, but for me it's always funny to uh, get to a certain point in RUF on Wednesday nights uh, during the school year where you kind of get to a low point during the sermon. You know, people are kind of getting a little restless. The heads are sort of nodding like that. And um, At one point, though, I'll stop and I'll say, you know, it reminds me of a story. A couple of years ago when I was in high school, and suddenly, without fail, everybody just goes and looks right up at me and makes eye contact. Why? Stories draw us in. Tonight, what I want to talk about, though, is to begin to unpack the essentials of any good story. Because any good story is always going to have a cast of characters. In many ways, uh, good stories are, are, are constituted uh, by good characters. Characters, in many ways, are what drive the story. That's what, that's what gives the story interest as we start to look at it. Um, the Bible has characters as well. The most interesting of which is mankind, the crown of God's creation. Um, but in sort of describing that character, we begin to find out all kinds of things about how God created mankind to be. Now look, um, I have tried to appeal to Ole Miss students since I arrived here in many ways. Um, that in my opinion, the, one of the number one unspoken struggles of the Ole Miss student is this great identity crisis that happens when you come here. And it's not a crisis because we undergo this great heaving amount of personal suffering, even though some of you do encounter hard suffering when you're at school. Uh, it's not an identity crisis because uh, uh, you're learning so much and your mind is expanding, even though that often happens for people too. Their world gets rocked intellectually. I think people undergo an identity crisis because it is such a powerful social place. Have you noticed this yet? <laughs> the... the, the um, the sort of uh, uh, inertia to conform at Ole Miss, in my opinion, is extraordinarily powerful. Um, where are the long-haired, freaky people who hang out in you know, little weird corners of the university that every other university has? Where are our, our alternative people? Uh, no, we all have on T-shirts, khaki shorts, and flip-flops or chacos uh, or something. Uh, it's extra or Nike shorts if you're a girl. Uh, uh, I warned Maddie when she came here. I was like, you know, Maddie, there's a uniform that you have to have. And she almost didn't believe me. And she, <laughs> at a certain staff meeting, she would come back and be like, you know, you're right. It's really extraordinary. Um, look, there's a powerful energy to conform here at Ole Miss. In my opinion, that is, um, that's, um, that's an identity issue. You're asking questions. And, by the way, you're answering them. Um, who am I? What drives me? What is it that makes me, me? No more profound question than can you answer. And I think it's the reason why Christianity uh, is very interesting for that reason. Because Christianity offers you an answer to that question. And so tonight what we're going to do is we're basically going to look at the topic of anthropology. 
Now I realize that you're thinking, wow, what a great buzzkill for a Wednesday night uh, uh, Bible study. Anthropology, I'm looking forward to that. Nah, don't write it off too quickly. When you begin to realize that anthropology comes into play in just about every single thing that you do. Everything, every decision that you made. The decisions you made to come here tonight extended from, in some senses, an anthropology. A way of you looking at yourself. Let's see what the Bible has to say about it. Okay, somebody read for me from the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Uh, we're going to do 26 through 31. 26 through 31. Anybody feel like reading tonight? Someone with a nice, cl- loud, cloud reading voice. Loud, clear reading voice. Cloud is loud and clear joined together. So, excellent. Who's going to be my reader tonight? Katie Hartman, are you going to read? Sure. Okay, excellent. 26 through 31? Yeah, please. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Man and female he created him. Them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the, beasts of the, all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Okay, there it is. Creation of man, the crown of God's creation. Five things tonight. Five descriptors that we get of the main character of God's story, which is us, by the way. Five descriptors. Number one, first thing the Bible says is that man was created to be a reflector. Man is created in the image of God. And that word image actually has some ancient Near Eastern connections that help us to understand what it means by God's image. In ancient Near Eastern um, um, kingdoms and nations... The king would often uh, make statues of himself, likenesses of himself, and place them in all of the major cities throughout his kingdom. And the purpose of it there was to remind the people that when they saw that image, okay, that that reminded them of the rule that God had over them. In some senses, it was to show them uh, His glory, that they were to look at Him and the image and to remember that there was somebody that was overruling them. So when we get the word, the image of God, man was created in God's image, we realize that one of his first reasons for existence is to actually be one that reflects God's glory. Um, The Westminster Shorter Catechism is a helpful tool for understanding uh, the major themes of what the Bible teaches. And the opening question from that catechism says, what is man's chief end or what is man's purpose in life? And remember the answer how it reads? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God. In other words, in order for a man, according to the Bible, to be completely human, all right, a a completely human person, he has got to be someone who reflects the glory of God. Now, this doesn't sound very interesting to anybody. And I don't know about you, but the idea of, uh, of the glory of God, these words get thrown around in religious circles. I don't know what that means. We talk about the worship of God. We talk about the fact that God created us to be worshipers of Him. 
And that all sounds very detached to us because I haven't been to church in forever or every time I do, I hate the music there. Uh, I'm bored by what they say. Worship just you know, puts me to sleep. That's not something that I do. Well, not so fast. Because what the Bible is saying is, is that man is created so fundamentally to be a worshiper that we're going to do it all the time. Let me pitch this to you. Uh, you've been worshiping today. Uh, you've been worshiping actually ever since you were born. Because the activity of worship is nothing more than this tendency. I would even go so far as to say this mechanism in you that causes you to go to something and say, now that is something. Now that's cool. That's beautiful. That's meaningful. That's powerful. That's something that attracts me. You are built that way. Man is, some commentators have said, a, a, a built-in worshiper. We are always searching for these things to lock onto and say, this is what I am. This is who I is. The, the, who I is. This is, <laughs> this is what drives me. I speak for a living. Bear with me. Um, look, here's the thing. You'll know what you're worshiping when you begin to notice where all of your spare time goes. Think about that. Um, when you don't have anything else to do, what do you do with your time? What fills up your time is the object of your worship. It's a key to that. Um, where, do, where does your money go? Where, where is your money being funneled? That's, a, that's, that's a, a way in which we express our worship, right? Um, what do you expend your personal resources on, your energies, your, uh, uh, your mental uh, 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 thought processes? How about this? What do you daydream about when you don't have, any, have anything else to think about? Um, you know, I've uh, uh, said for years that Ole Miss is a very extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily uh, efficient worship congregation. Uh, we have our services about seven or eight times in the fall on Saturdays in the Grove. Uh, people bring a tent and lots of food. There's a sacrament there of things that you wear and things that you don't wear, almost as fancy as church. Uh, uh, people hang chandeliers from their, uh, uh, from their tents, and they uh, go to all extraordinary lengths to make sure it's all prepared properly. Uh, and then we all go together, and we praise, too. We, we lift our voices and praise for the object of our worship, which is the community of the Ole Miss football there. Um, it's, it, in my opinion... Saturday afternoons in the Grove are an extraordinarily religious experience. And that's what the Bible is saying. Now I know what you're thinking to yourself. thinking, laugh. I don't care about football, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. But there is something that you give your time to. Wherever my time goes, my resources will follow it. And the Bible says that is this mechanism in you of being a worshiper. Now, one last little thought before we move on. God is basically saying, though, that I have created the universe in such a way that you only function properly if you find your greatest delight in me. Now, for just a moment, can I give you the freedom to say to yourself, yeah, that's never happened to me. It's okay to look at yourself and say, well, I feel guilty about God. I mean, I grew up because my parents went to church. And I went to church after them. That's kind of the way I relate to God. But this idea of like being thrilled by him, being fascinated by him, by finding him attractive, by finding him beautiful, by finding him something that I would find so life-giving that I would suddenly give my resources to it, eh, 
Not so much. I want to give you the freedom to admit that because, because if you'll admit to that fact that you've never seen him in that way, you might just get curious and say, well, I don't know, there's a lot of other people in the Bible that found him fairly interesting. Maybe I missed something. That's where it begins and where you start to be a true reflector of God's glory. And you happen to become a real human being according to the Bible. Number one. Okay? All right, number two. The Bible secondly says that we are rulers. Okay? The second major thing that we get is that man is called to rule. That's what it says there uh, in um, Katie Red Forest there about having dominion. There in verse 28, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and all the birds of the air, blah, blah, blah. Psalm 8, uh, uh, <clears throat> 5 and 6 says, You made him, that is man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the worlds of your hands and put everything under his feet. Okay, two quick thoughts of what we get from mankind being a ruler. The first one is, is dignity. I've gotten to where I find every opportunity that I can to remind you that from the Christian world view, <laughs> human beings are valuable in their own right. No matter what race, creed, color, language, background, socioeconomic class, whatever. Um, and you would think that this wouldn't bear reminding in our society, but it really does. Uh, to be honest with you, the 1900s... Uh, clearly went down, I think without question, in history as the bloodiest, one of the most destructive centuries in all of human history since we've been keeping record of it. Um, But what I want you to see is, is those kinds of activities are caused by faulty anthropologies. Have you ever thought about this? I'll be honest, I'm a little weirded out by this. Um, Was it 96 when the Rwanda thing happened? What was the Rwandan uh, uh, genocide? 1996, I think it was. It's really funny. I mean, I've, all of you are obviously very young during this time, but uh, there, were, there were two sort of tribal uh, uh, societies. You, you really can't call them tribal because it's a, it's, a uh, 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 it's a modern nation state, uh, largely. Um, but the two fundamental tribes, the Hutus and the Tutsis, um, uh, uh, that existed in here... And, at one point, because of a long history uh, of conflict and uh, uh, um, uh, um, what's what I'm looking for, racism that had happened between the two of them, the Tutsis decided that they would have um, no, no, excuse me, the Hutus decided they had enough with Tutsis and began a process of uh, extermination. And if you read, there was an old documentary that was made by this uh, at the 10-year anniversary in 2006 that. Um, like uh, Frontline did. Is that, the, is that the PBS series, Frontline? Uh, anyway, great documentary on it. Um, wh- where do you have to be mentally to take a machete in your hands and to hack another human being to death? Now, here's what you're thinking to yourself. You're saying, you have to be a sociopath. Okay, no, but this was like a million people that rose I mean. Murder was happening every day for three months. Everyone, every Hutu took up arms to slay Tutsis in their neighborhood or around them. And, and again, you're thinking to yourself, ah, oh, those are crazy primitive people. Really? You're going to wipe away that many people? No, no, no. I want to suggest to you something more fundamental happened, that they redefined that person. What happened was you looked and said, they are not human. They are less than human. 
And what you do is when you rob a person of dignity, you make it possible to kill them. Do you ever read like stories from World War II and it seems so weird about the Holocaust? You're kind of like, what kind of weird barbarians existed before us brilliant, you know, sort of high-minded 21st century kids, you know? Well, look, it's still happening today. And you would be historically very naive to think that in your lifetime you will not see a society grow brutal in its treatment of man upon man. You're naive. <laughs> now, I, I recognize that in some degree there's all kinds of brutality that's being exercised to certain you know, uh, uh, sections of our society right now. But you're naive if you think that's not going to happen in your time. But I simply want to pitch to you that it begins by redefining who that person is. God looks and says, in my economy, that person has dignity no matter what. Okay? That's because they're a ruler, first of all. Secondly, though, it also shows that man is to be responsible over his creation. This is a big deal, and I'm not going to go real into this because we don't have time for it, but um, why is it that the people that are the most involved in creation preserving in our time are those who come from, um, how can I say this, materialistic anthropologies, uh, there's a lot of sort of uh, um, atheistic worldviews, anti-God, sort of God-purging worldviews that um, uh, are the ones who are caring for creation. <laughs> that's, that's a tragedy. God is saying you're to rule over creation because in it you're going to find me. Now, we're going to talk about this a lot this fall. I was working on some of our sermons for uh, uh, the Apostles' Creed this fall, uh, this week. And uh, we are supposed to be creation preservers if you're calling yourself a Christian. Because God has so implanted himself in the creation that it's actually part of our evangelism. You should want to be someone who's interested in conservation because it's where God is going to show himself. So we're to take responsibility for that. That's where we are supposed to be responsible. Okay. So secondly, we're rulers over, uh, over our... Uh, um, over the creation as well. All right, thirdly, and it's a nice little lead into the third thing that describes human beings. The Bible also says that we are workers. Rule over it. Subdue it, it says. Um, anybody familiar with any uh, Greek mythology at all? Uh, when Pandora's box gets opened in Greek mythology, what is it that comes out of Pandora's box? It's quiz time at RUF. No Greek mythology majors or anything? A lot of bad stuff. That's effective. It's particularly what? Chaos. Chaos comes out. What else? Death comes out. Uh, decay. Do what now? And work comes out of Pandora's box. Very good. How did you know that? That's impressive. Pull that right out. You know what I'm talking about this? Um, work comes out of Pandora's box. In other words, the ancient uh, 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 Greeks assumed <laughs> that work was a bad thing. Um, and I know that you're thinking to yourself, it is. You know, you don't know my job. Um, I slave over it. It curses me. It curses my family. When the Bible's, um, I don't know, your dad may have never been home at night. I don't know. He worked too much. I don't know. A lot, a lot of embittered, you know, college students because dad was never home. Isn't that right? I don't know. Come on. What's wrong with you people? You're all laughing at me right now. I'm connecting here. Um, um, in, in Christianity, work is not a bad thing. That's as, as much as we can say. As a matter of fact, it's not just not only a bad thing, it's actually a very good thing. Um, look, y'all, look at economic theory, the, the way in which different people approach work. Um, I, Keller used to do this great illustration between the difference between capitalism and communism. The capitalist basically comes in and says, 
um, the person that's, that has no value in the capitalist society is the unskilled worker. You ever thought about this? In other words, the, the, the person who actually can't produce in capitalism is the one that you look down on. If you can't find yourself a niche where you can be an earner, you're worthless to a, to a capitalist society, right? And that's one of the reasons why in our culture, that's the people that we value are those that can produce. They can produce financial, you know, financial wizards, you know, corporate America. Aren't those the heroes of our, of our particular contemporary culture? Um, it's interesting, though, that it, our culture undervalues those that care for immaterial stuff. <laughs> teachers, how about that, teachers? Have you looked at your pay scale lately? Uh, education is always at the bottom end uh, of that. Why? Uh, because they don't, it's an immaterial thing that you're producing in the life of a child, right? Okay, but then you go to communism, though, and sort of the opposite end, and the communists sort of disdain the professional uh, because they're an elitist and they break down sort of the unity of mankind. But the problem was is Marx's theories about all these things were built on an atheistic view of the world. And for that reason, it only took the you know, communist uh, uh, Russia about 70 years or so uh, to realize that if there is no God, <laughs> then who cares about whether or not there's equity between man and man? Does that make sense? I mean, if, if there is no God and there is no higher rule out there, then what keeps me from oppressing you? And that's exactly what ends up happening in those atheistic regimes. But the Bible has a such great wisdom for the capitalist and the communist <laughs> because it comes along and says, I'm neither. Sorry to bust your, you know, your 700 club, you know, fundamentalist uh, view of uh, Christianity. Um, um, but the Bible comes along and says all work has dignity to it. All work has dignity. You want to know why? Because God works. God works and therefore we work. All work is a calling. Christians always got used to calling what they did their, uh, their, their job, their calling. That's a, why did they do that? Because they understood there was something that God gave us to do. Look, y'all, think about the task that you consider the most menial. You know, I'll be honest with you, ladies. There may be, if, if God grants some of you the, the, uh, the gift of children, <laughs> um, not sure why I'm laughing at that, there's going to come a long list of moments where you're knee-deep in diaper poo-poo, okay? Thinking to yourself, there is no one in the world that's watching what I'm doing right now. Nobody cares what I do. And it's going to feel like an absolutely purposeless thing. And you don't want to give up a whole lot. A lot of us will find ourselves in the job that we didn't necessarily want to do, that doesn't necessarily thrill our soul, where you feel like we're out there sort of, you know, being, you know, co-creators with God. It's going to, it's going to waste us away. But the Bible looks and says any legitimate vocation is a calling. And you can take glory in that and enjoy it as something that God looks and says uh, is not beneath you. Hey, look, y'all, when God created man, he got dirt under his fingernails. You know, he was hard at work. And, and for that reason, secondly, and I'll throw this in just as a freebie, Christians also don't elevate vocations above the other. I say this oftentimes because there's a lot of people that talk about, um, um, how can I say this? A lot of people talk about... Um, Christian work in a way which makes, it makes me very uncomfortable. When I was a kid, I don't know about y'all, but I had pastors look at me and say, well, now, Les, have you ever thought about going into full-time Christian service? And over the years, I began to realize, I thought, well, you know, I didn't realize that there was a part-time Christian service that I could sign up for. Um, can I be a part-time Christian sometime? But what was the implication? Well, see, Les, they're the pastors, mm-hmm, who are really following Jesus up here. And then there's all the mundane accountants and, you know, uh, doctors and lawyers and all the other people. In other words, we look and say there's certain things that are super spiritual. That's not the case. 
There's nothing more spiritual about my vocation as a minister of the gospel called by a church to do spiritual work than it is for you to pursue a degree in the medical field. Now, don't let that, don't let that woo you away from a, a possibility of a life serving in the church. We need you. We're looking for some helpful people. Um, but don't do it because you suddenly think that it makes you more spiritual because we're called to be workers, okay? That's thirdly. Fourthly, we're almost done. We're also called, this is one that thrills me the most, we're called to be minors, M-I-N-E-R-S, not O-R-S, minors. Um, if you look at verse 28, this whole thing about being fruitful and multiplying, being fruitful, what does it mean to be fruitful? It means to bear fruit, right? Uh, the theologians refer to this, and this is a little phrase you kind of need to know if you're going to be an educated person. Um, the theologians call that the cultural mandate. And all it's saying is, is that every Christian is given this, this impulse to be about the business of mining, M-I-N-I-N-G, the creation for what we believe to be an unlimited amount of resources that God has implanted in the universe. Okay, now, 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 go with me here for just a second. When God creates the heavens and the earth, He doesn't just do it in sort of a static way. Uh, dirt, and then walk away from it. What God does is He, is he creates a symphonic orchestra of materials, of energies, of properties, of axiomatic scientific principles that govern the universe but that are absolutely unlimited in our ability to investigate them. They are limitless in their potentialities. And God looks at man when he creates him and says, have at it. (laughs) Go dive in. Now, I've gotten very defensive about this point of late because I'm hearing in the last four or five years, there's a lot of guys that have gotten very popular. Uh, The new atheism with your Richard Dawkins and your Christopher Hitchens types have made a lot of money off a lot of books basically saying that if we allow God into the science classroom, we will kill science. Because if you believe there's a God, you're going to stop investigating. You see, a scientist, they reason, looks at the unknown of the universe and he's like, I wonder how that works. I'll go investigate it. A Christian, they say, looks and says, I wonder how that works. Oh, God was the one who did it. And he stops investigating because he chalks it up to God. Uh, Nothing could be further from the truth. (laughs) Because we've already said that man is meant to be someone who glorifies God. How do we glorify him? We glorify him by finding delight in him. Well, what do we delight in in God's works? Hello, his creation. I delight in God when I delight in His creation. Now, you're about to write me off here in just about 10 seconds. Gentlemen, for many of you, the very last realm of God's creation that He is going to allow you to experience, the last little ounce of hunter-gatherer inside of your gender DNA will be spent on your yard. Okay? Okay? My yard is something that I am extraordinarily pleased with. When you come in and say, Les, you know, I notice you cut the grass. It's a nice little edge that you put there. I'm embarrassed at the amount of personal pleasure that I derive (laughs) from being able to look over at the perfectly edged corners. And I want you to notice them as you leave my house tonight. In my yard. 
if I derive that kind of joy from something that ridiculously <laughs> pathetic, I know, and I'll, you probably have the dark socks and the you know, lawnmower on before too terribly long. It's just age is rushing me towards it. How much more to the person who looks and says, you know what? I can't rest while there's cancer in the world. I can't rest while there's cancer in the world. Because that cancer, I know, is a defacing of God's creation. Because man is the crown of his creation, and cancer is something that's antithetical to that and brings death. I won't have it. I'm going to give myself to that research. Look, y'all, to be a minor is to go and to be what Tolkien used to refer to as a sub-creator. We can't create out of nothing like God did, but we can create after him because he has a creative mind. Okay? All right, fifthly and finally, and I'll wrap it up with this. Finally, mankind is meant to be a rester. Uh, we didn't read this part, um, but if you jump on into cha- uh, chapter 2, you find that when God finished with his sixth day of creation, the first thing that he does on the beginning of the seventh day is he rests. He stops. He ceases from his work at that point. And for that reason, to be adequately in his image, we have to be resters. Now, uh, it would be a very interesting uh, uh, topic tonight, I think, for us to look into the question of what the Bible says in the... uh, Sorry, brain fart. um, Fourth of the Ten Commandments. Man, my seminary professors are going to be embarrassed to see that I had to pull it forth. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. That is the fourth, isn't it? Yes, thank you. Man. Um, Remember the Sabbath day. Well, I would explore that. Is there a day that we have to set aside? Hmm, I don't know, Les. That's controversial. I don't get legalistic about it. We'll talk about that. Maybe during the Q&A that we're going to have here in about three or four minutes. But I simply want to pitch to you that I think God is talking about something much more than just a day that's set apart to observe the restfulness that God has won for His people. I think the Bible is talking not just about that, but really about the REM of the soul. Um, The Bible is not just saying when you're created to be a rester that you just need to have a good nap. (laughs) Here I am fulfilling the the, the mandate for my design in Christian anthropology. I'm out. It's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying, is there a rest in your souls? Look, it wasn't very much into Christianity before you had a guy named Augustine who would walk in and say something along the lines of, you know, God, you have made us for, our, for yourself, and our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. There's a restlessness of the soul that, to be honest with you, by the time you get into college, I don't think I need to define for you. That you have to understand, well, look, y'all, I want you to ask this question, are you a driven person? Are you someone who can be described as always having performance lingering over you and wondering whether you're measuring up to whatever standard, whether that standard comes from within, from your own anxiety, or whether it comes from without, from the pressures that you feel like are are, crushing you? The Bible comes along and says that you've not actually discovered the real heart of your humanity until you find out that there is one who came thousands of years after mankind's creation, who came along to actually do a work on your behalf so that you could rest. Um, uh, Romans uh, chapter 4 verse 5 bears uh, repeating here uh, in closing. uh, Because Paul, when he's writing his great letter to uh, the believers in Rome, is trying to explain what it means for us to really be truly and fully human. 
And in chapter 4, verse 5, he looks and says this. He says, um, chapter 4, verse 5, sorry. He says, and to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. In other words, Paul is basically saying, in other words, what, what you have to learn how to do is to not work. Now you do realize that he cannot mean by that <laughs> to not work like we were talking about how mankind was meant to work. Most notably because by the end of Romans he talks about us doing a whole lot of work. Working to help the poor, working to bring about you know, the kingdom, all these other things. What does he mean though by not working? I want to submit to you what he means is by not trusting in your working. In other words, y'all, you'll never be someone who is a rester until Jesus has become to come to be the one who fulfills your humanity. We don't rest from our work and from the business of being human until the Lord Jesus Christ comes and fulfills that for you and covers you with His work so that you can look and say, I will not work. I'm not going to count on any of those things to make me who I am. Rather, I'm going to draw my most fundamental self-definition in life, not from my career, not from my boyfriend or my girlfriend, not from my parents' obsessive approval, not from the fact that people look at me on this campus at Ole Miss and refer to me as someone who's attractive, not from the fact that I know that I've got the intellectual capabilities to basically best the next person that comes along, but from who I am defined in Jesus Christ. And when He defines me, that's the first step in which I become fully human Here's my question. Does that describe your (laughs) self-definition? Would you have come up with anything like that when you began to reflect on who you are as a human being?